Good morning. Uh, my topic for this morning is libertarian conceptions of order. Yesterday, I mentioned that Orlando Patterson, in his book on freedom, reports the claim that is widely made, though also disputed, that languages outside the European tradition lack a word or a concept for what we generally mean by liberty or freedom. They have instead words that combine something like being unchained with anarchic and ruleless and morally base and chaotic. Whether or not that's true as a matter of comparative linguistics, we can at least understand that set of associations. And that set of associations is, I think, an enduringly powerful challenge to the idea that people ought to be free to live their lives and pursue their goals and their wishes. The regime of modern liberty that Benjamin Constant described, we each have our religions and gods to worship. We each have our preferences to satisfy. We each have our hobbies, we each have our consumer goods, we each have what we want to do with our days and our lives. In most moral and political traditions, in the West as well as outside the West, that's a description of rulelessness and anarchy and chaos and moral baseness and moral collapse. There's a very powerful intuition that in order for societies to function, in order for people to live morally appropriate lives together, someone has to be in charge, decisions have to be made, plans need to be issued. And that for the fo most fundamental questions in social life and social organization, we can't leave things to happen on their own. Leaving them to happen on their own is the very definition of anarchic morallessness and rulelessness. Now, there have been ways of thinking about alternatives to that since long before the 18th century and long before the 20th century. But in the 18th and 20th centuries, we saw the development of a particularly robust and general account of why that's wrong, and of across how many domains, and under what kinds of circumstances, we can expect that people living their own lives, making their own choices, going their own way, without a plan or a planner, without a director or a rule giver, can be at least as good as, and in important ways, very much better than the planned alternative. This is the tradition of spontaneous order, developed especially in the Scottish Enlightenment, though with some input from Montesquieu in the 18th century, and recovered and made the basis of most of Friedrich Hayek's social scientific inquiries in the 20th century and thenceforth becoming one of the most important and powerful ideas in libertarian and classical liberal thought from the mid-20th century onward. 
I want to spend some time developing the questions to which spontaneous order is eventually a surprising answer, making plain just how counterintuitive it was. Then I want to talk about the contributions of the idea itself in the 18th and the 20th centuries. And then I want to close by talking about some worries and some limits. Remember, I'm someone who likes gaps and overlaps and pulling apart. And the idea of spontaneous order, I think, is one of the most powerful and important ideas in social science and social theory. And yet, we should always distrust anything that is a key to everything. In ancient societies, most substantial problems of social life and social organization were imagined to have been solved divinely. The law came from gods or a god. Language came from gods or a god. The fact of there being a city here came from gods or a god. There are divine and mythic histories that answer the apparently strange question, how is it that all of this came to work more or less satisfactorily? Because in any functioning society over any length of time, a lot of things work more or less satisfactorily. That doesn't mean we're ever living in utopia. It doesn't mean we're ever living in a place that we could imagine an all-powerful, all-benevolent God as having ordered down to its fine details. But the question, why are we not killing each other all the time? How is it that we can speak and be understood? How is it that there are so many questions of social ordering and law that we all of us take for granted all of the time. In any well-functioning society, in any society that persists over time, most legal questions are never disputed. Every day, I decline to assault hundreds of people. <laughs> I decline to rob hundreds or possibly thousands of people. Every day, my next-door neighbor and I decline to invade one another's property line. Every day, you pay storekeepers and get goods in exchange, and nobody goes to court over it. This is true in all functioning societies. It's true in the ancient world as well as the modern. It's true in non-market economies as well as market economies. It's what it is for a society to be something other than just a slave camp with a well-run set of overseers. We, all of us, all of the time, have a great deal of coordination. How is that possible? Well, to the degree that it was thought about, and it wasn't thought about in quite those terms, it was readily soluble in an era that was suffused with mythic divine explanations of everything. And this remained true even when societies started to develop the idea of deliberate human intervention and agency. So in ancient Greece, we see a powerful idea of the lawgiver or the legislator. In a place like Athens or Sparta, a figure like Solon or Lycurgus is credited with an all-at-once legal reform 
of the fundamental constitutional institutions of those polities and of founding them in their political forms as those existed during the fifth century BCE, during the golden age of classical Greece. But Solon and Lycurgus were understood as having reshaped the public institutions of Athens and Greece. They did not decide in some fundamental all at once way who owned what. Most law, most of the time, was nomos, the law of the land. The basic traditional shared normative understandings of who owns what and how we know. That's fundamental to successful social ordering in an even partly agricultural society as the ancient Greek city-states were. Where did the nomos come from? Well, the nomos was still thought of as having a kind of mythic divine inspiration in the background. What the Greeks introduced was the twofold sense of decision and planning and ordering. The gods ordered a bunch of stuff, and then these great lawgivers ordered the rest of the stuff. In Rome, however, I think we see the beginning of something that is quite different. Certainly in Rome, there was a sense and an appreciation of the inheritance of law. But in Rome, unlike in Greece, there was not a powerful tradition of thinking about the lawgiver and the legislator. And they developed a class of professional jurists and lawyers. Rome was a very complicated society as it expanded over Italy, then over the rest of the Mediterranean. It brought together people with different background normative systems, different laws of the land, and put them into a shared trading world, a shared commercial world, at least as much as it put them into a shared political world. And it thereby created a situation in which people needed to be able to know who owned what, what counted as contracts, what counted as injuries that were due recompense. And over the centuries, Rome developed laws that were partly apart from the inherited nomos, the inherited traditional historical law of the land of any of the component peoples, even the Roman people. And how did it do this? It did this substantially through case-by-case -case dispute resolution, hiring advocates of a kind, creating a professional class of jurists who gave opinions and developed ideas, having judges who made reference to those ideas, allowing there to be a simplified version of traditional Roman law such that Roman subjects visiting the city of Rome didn't have to master all of the inherited traditional knowledge of Rome in order to know when they could safely buy and sell and when, if the eaves fell off someone's roof and hit them on the head, something about which there's a surprisingly detailed Roman law, um, they could sue for recompense. Over the centuries, and there's 
well over 1,000 years anyway, and depending on how you count, could be well over 2,000 years, but it's well over 1,000 years of continuous Roman legal development. Over those centuries, there are periodic moments when someone says, let's write it all down. But the writing of it all down was not understood as being the source of law. The most important early of these, the 12 tables near the founding of the Roman Republic, was explicitly described as a way to make the existing law of Rome accessible to the lower classes. What happens when law is substantially the purview of professional hired jurists? Well, one thing that happens is that it gets complicated. And another thing that gets, happens is that the complications tend to redound to the favor of those who can afford the lawyers. And so there's a demand from the lower class of Rome, make the law accessible to us. Make it such that we can see it. And even if we are not literate, all we have to do is hire someone who's literate, not a lawyer, who can explain to us what the law says there. But the 12 tables didn't make the Roman law. They reported it. And this happens again successively over the 1,000 years of Roman legal development. The law evolves. The law evolves in a way that the Romans are aware of. They can look back from one compilation to another. They can read the commentaries written by jurists over the centuries and see that the law has changed while remaining an effective tool for the legal and social ordering of the Roman world, both the Roman Republic and the later Roman Empire, a change which did not much disrupt the ordinary functioning of private law. You can no longer tell a story in which the law is given and directed by God or gods. Partly can't tell that story because Rome undergoes a transition from gods to God. And Christian Rome could hardly claim that the Christian God had created the law of Rome in 500 BCE. Instead, there's an appreciation of the way in which law can change bit by bit. As a result, to use a phrase to which we'll return, of human action but not human design. There are successive codifications, sometimes motivated by the desire for the lower classes to get readier access to the contents of the law, often after the republic becomes an empire, driven by emperor's desires to know what's in the law once and for all. Lower classes don't much like the complexity, neither do emperors. Complex law is law that lawyers can sometimes use to tell kings and emperors that they're wrong. Emperors want to be able to look it all up. But the emperors did not, even in ordering codifications of the law, purport to make the law. Yesterday, Tom quoted a passage from the compilation of Roman law ordered by the emperor Justinian that translates as, what pleases the prince has the force of law. Even Justinian, 
even that late in the day, even after centuries of imperial rule, did not try to force his jurist to say, what pleases the prince is law. It was understood that in a basic way, the Romans would not believe that law was something that an emperor could just decide and say out loud. Now, this was a little bit because the emperor's, the empire maintained the pretense of being constitutionally continuous with the republic. And there had been a traditional role of the Roman assembly, including the senate, in announcing new law. But it was even more fundamentally that most of the law compiled at the order of Justinian hadn't issued from anything like the assembly or the senate or any emperor. It was the course that law had evolved in over the course of a millennium. That at least introduced, I think, into the Western tradition an idea of ordering without an orderer. And Justinian's compilation, when it's rediscovered in medieval Europe, becomes the most influential legal document in medieval and modern European history. The medieval Europeans were tremendously impressed by the complexity and the sophistication of this legal code of a society that was by then 500 years gone. They would sometimes describe it as reason written down, reason itself written down, ratio scripta. But what they saw there wasn't one nice, clean code of legislation. What they saw there were the opinions and disagreements and interpretations that Justinian's chief jurists had selected and compiled from many hundreds of years of competing Roman law interpretations. So even though Justinian's code as one portion of the compilation was referred to, even though the code became treated as a kind of statute book, the Roman law as a whole taught the medieval European legal minds that law can evolve. And indeed, in the hands of the medievals, it did. Most of the legal development of the Middle Ages happened because university professors and the lawyers they trained, but especially the university professors, would engage in acts of interpretation and reinterpretation and commentary on this tremendous body of legal knowledge that had been rediscovered from the ancient world. Literally writing in the margins and then writing another round of commentary around the round of commentary that was written in the margins. Those of you who uh, will recognize the reference, will recognize this as a Talmudic approach. Well, the medieval law professors adopted a Talmudic approach to this inherited body of legal knowledge. They would make available to their students a page that in the middle had this much of Justinian's compilation, and then this much of the first generation of commentary, and this much of the second generation of commentary. A scholarly apparatus, the footnotes. It's kept the footnotes surrounded the whole text. When that's how you're learning law, you're seeing meaningful change and evolution 
literally right in front of your eyes, you can see the generations of change as the old comments are left and are commented upon. And I think it's not a coincidence that in medieval Europe, the idea of law as a direct command of the ruling authorities was at a relative low point. Kings and dukes and barons, the various idiot warlords and great-great-grandsons of Charlemagne's idiot warlords, they had no special knowledge to set against the inheritance of Justinian's compilation. They had no interest in that. They never said, the law around here is the Roman law of property and contract because I ordered it. The reason that that's the law is because that's what the lawyers learned. Why is that what the lawyers learned? Because it's what the law professors taught them. In a trans-European way, the lawyers from all over Europe would go to the same half dozen universities, read the same materials, bring them back to the societies they were from, and offer their legal services to people. If you want to write a good contract, if you want a good effective rule for resolution of property disputes, well, you hire one of these trained lawyers. And what is the lawyer applying? The lawyer is not applying the local king's order. The lawyer is applying law understood as being from some other extra political but still human source. No one decided it. The same, by the way, was true of the law that governed inside the Roman Catholic Church. What we now know as canon law was continuous with Roman law. It didn't have that same 500-year interruption that the Roman civil law did. But within the Roman Catholic Church, the body of law that governs internal church matters had gone on being revised bit by bit. It was Roman law plus century after century of revision and precedent and commentary and case resolution. The canon law was not ordered by God. No one ever says that it was. They do say that certain very important disputes might have reached their correct resolution because they were guided by the Holy Spirit. But it's human actors reaching decisions just with a little nudge in the right direction in the way that the Holy Spirit operates. The medieval European legal mind was a mind that could appreciate the idea that law evolved under fundamentally human agency. As political power coalesced into what become early modern states, first in England and France and Spain, and then gradually in the rest of Europe, as political power coalesced, kings began to believe more and more in their own fundamental necessity. They came to believe the story that so many ancient kings and emperors had told. The reason why a society works is because I've ordered it to work. The source of things functioning is my will, my decision. And there emerges growing discomfort on the part of political rulers with just saying the law is what comes from the law professors at the University of Bologna 
reading these old books, and teaching lawyers. An urge to take greater control of a law-making process. And the effect of political capacity to do that, that's something that we see in these coalescing early modern states. There's a slightly different story to tell about England, um, but not one, I think, that changes this basic story very much. Early modern kings in England, they're faced with the common law and the canon law, rather than the civil law and the canon law. But in both cases, gain increasing antipathy to the idea that law is something that just happens, and an increasing desire to have law be something that they made. What the early modern kings in Europe are doing and saying, it seems to me, is fundamentally the old thing, not a new thing. It's the normal response that political rulers had had around the world and for centuries. The medieval era was something of an exception here. That kings would say, either I or I standing in for the divinity am basically the source of things going well here. Well, that's an obvious legitimation strategy for kings. Probably they also mostly believed it. But it's a good legitimation strategy because other people believe it too. There's something mysterious about the question, why aren't we all killing each other all the time? How can I speak and have you understand me? And all the rest. We like explanations of complex phenomena that reduce to their being someone who made it that way. The argument from design played an important part in traditional Christian theology, the argument that, well, if I find a clock sitting in the field, I don't assume that the clock just happened. I look for the clockmaker. And look, the universe is so much vaster and more beautiful and more glorious and more complicated than a clock. Therefore, there's a god for just the same reason that therefore there must be a clockmaker. That's an argument that says complexity, function, things working, there has to be a mind behind them. But it's not, I think, a uniquely or even distinctly Christian thought. It's a basic intuition that we have to which kings and priests appeal in saying, you owe us gratitude and obedience for the fact that anything around here works at all. Early modern European philosophers, especially in the Protestant countries, seeking to really break from the canon law and seeking something that's really self-contained for their political societies that, is not due, that does not owe any kind of obedience to the papacy. They generate the thought that everything in a society arises out of a deliberate decision to create that society and then the deliberate decisions that follow from those who we put in charge. Thomas Hobbes is the most explicit about all of these questions. Thomas Hobbes makes plain that not only political order, but law, language, and morality itself, morality at least in the ordinary day-to-day -day human interaction sense, they result from the decision of the sovereign. 
And the sovereign is created by the decision to create it all at once. Legal, linguistic, and moral disputes would arise all the time if not for the fact that there's someone in charge to settle them. And among the fundamental duties of the sovereign are to fix meanings to words and to declare his will in a way that will generate legal clarity. Thomas Hobbes' social contract theory of the Leviathan is not only a theory about how we get a king. It's a theory about the things that a sovereign government, be it a king or an assembly, must do in order to create order. Saying over and over again, in the absence of such deliberately created order, the whole thing would fall apart and humanity would, would return to a natural condition of a war of all against all. Well, there are differences among the social contract theorists in the details of their preferred political arrangements. In this, there is not great difference among the social contract theorists. That the sources of legal ordering are to be found in the shared, publicly known, deliberate decisions of the agency that we decided to create. That what it is to have a society is to reach a decision and make one and then have order that is due to that decision. This runs through Grotius and Hobbes and Rousseau and, of course, that most pernicious of alleged liberals, John Locke. It's in the 18th century, rather than the 17th century high watermark of social contractarianism, that we begin to see the development in an explicit and conscious way of an alternative view. Civil society, as that phrase is used by Locke, is just the same as what I just described. We come together to create a civil society, that is, a political and juridical and legal order. In the 18th century, we get the beginnings of a phrase like civil society that means something else. Social orders that are not coterminous with political orders. They aren't founded. They aren't created. And they don't necessarily disappear when the political society does. I think one of the reasons why the Scottish Enlightenment is a particularly rich place for insights about this over the course of the late 18th century is that in 1707, Scotland had ceased to exist as an independent polity. In Locke's sense, that means there's no more Scotland. And yet, and yet there's a rich and robust continued sense that Scotland is still a place. Scotland is still society with norms of its own. Indeed, it's a place with laws of its own, but the, that there are laws of its own only makes sense because it's a place of its own. That Scotland is a society even though it is not a polity. It's a concept that doesn't make any sense on contractarian terms. But in the Scottish Enlightenment and in Montesquieu, we find theorists trying to articulate the idea that there are social orders that are older, 
and deeper and more complex and more fundamental than the political structures that get created from time to time. There are what we would call cultures. There are languages. There are normative systems. Even laws themselves might just issue from those complexes of human social interactions. Adam Smith says in his lectures on jurisprudence that even what we think of as justice itself is something that develops out of the changes in human productive and political capacities. That is, justice doesn't mean the same thing for agricultural peoples, that it meant for herding peoples, that it meant for hunter and gathering peoples. Why do we have property rights in land? We have property rights in land because eventually agricultural peoples need it. Not because God ordained it, not because there's some metaphysical truth about mixing my labor with the land, because it is an expression of the underlying social needs of the whole social order that an agricultural society comes to be. Along with this, we find a rejection of the radical bifurcation between a state of nature where there is no norm, no law, no order, and society, which is something that we create all at once. Smith's contemporary, Adam Ferguson, in his essay on the history of civil society, makes this explicit. Rejecting contractarianism and saying, where, you ask, is the state of nature? It is here. And it is here whether we are in Great Britain or the Cape of Magellan or in Africa. The human condition is a natural condition. That we organize ourselves socially and effectively is natural to us. It is not a matter of artifice. Our sociality, not just meaning our niceness or our underlying moral disposition, but facts about the way that we live together and organize our lives bit by bit over time, that's natural to us. And so we don't need the contractarian device of asking, where did the order come from? Who made it? Who decided it? We instead find over and over again, in the phrase that Ferguson coins, that such orders, such complexities, such societies are the result of human action, but not of human design. The most powerful and most enduring instance of this idea of ordering was to be not language or law or transformations in modes of production a la Ferguson, but Adam Smith's understanding of an economic order in which the actors are guided as if by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of their purpose. The question of ordering had not traditionally been centered on economic questions. But from Smith's time on, I think there was always increasing attention to economic questions for such matters. How does it happen that Paris is fed? When the king of France cannot actually go around ordering every farmer to produce appropriate amounts of grain and does not go around ordering every cart to go to every farm and bring the grain to Paris. How does it happen? It happens as a result 
of the interaction of a vast, complex array of local and individual level decisions. This is not, by the way, in Adam Smith, something that will only start to happen once we get the ideally free market in place. It is rather how Smith understands the development of human history, the development of human law, the development of morality, and the basic fact that in functioning societies, people get fed. I want to talk for a second about what I just said about Smith and morality, because it's, I think, an especially unusual and striking and powerful instance of thinking about spontaneous order. Surely the idea that morality is something that, well, God ordered, is kind of fundamental. That's something that was under debate as long ago as ancient Greece in the disputes about whether things are moral because the gods ordered them or whether the gods ordered them because they were moral. But one way or another, that there's a fundamental relationship between the content of the moral rules and the decisions of gods runs that deep. Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments is not, for the most part, a set of moral prescriptions. It is an account of the evolution of morality over time at a societal level, but also and fundamentally at an individual level. I observe you doing wrong. I feel anger on behalf of your victim for the wrong that you've done. I become aware that you're looking at me too. I start to think about what I might do that would prompt that same anger in you. I observe lots of wrongs. I feel lots of anger. I see lots of people watching me. I think often about what it is that does and what it is that could in my actions prompt that anger in them. And I think and I learn and I generalize. There's no point of necessary entry here for a divine decision. And there's no need for a background of universal moral truth written in the stars. What there are are facts about human interaction and some basic sense of fellow feeling that we have, such that when I see you punch the guy next to you, I feel a sense of indignation. That plus our awareness of watching and being watched, that allows morality to emerge. What emerges is not flawless. Smith makes no claim for it. It is perfectly capable of being distorted. It's wrapped up in vanity. It's wrapped up in social judgments. It could be that my society has taken some really bad turn. And what I learn from watching you watching me is that you judge me badly for doing things that really I ought to be doing. But we have the capacity to think and generalize a little more, to allow whole moral systems to grow and emerge. And this, Smith thinks, is the basic mechanism for the learning and the transmission of morality. If that can happen for even something as abstract and difficult to get a hold of as human social morality, then it can surely happen for more mundane things like lawmaking and getting Paris fed.
And this runs throughout Smith's social science. Smith is uninterested in moments of political founding. He is mocking and dismissive of the idea of social contracts and political obligations due to polities being created all at once. He has naturalistic explanations for where politics comes from, where law comes from, and where modes of economic production come from. Bit by bit, decision by decision, the things we do interact with each other to create a world that is very much more complicated than any of us could have imagined, and an order that is far beyond what any of us intended. It's that last part that what's created is more complicated than and far past the intentions of anything that any one of us wanted or decided. It's that that marks out the idea of spontaneous order. Of course, if you just let people loose and they all run around bumping into each other, stuff will happen. No one ever denied that. What Smith emphasizes is that the stuff that happens under certain circumstances, and how carefully we have to delineate the circumstances varies from one domain to another, but under some sets of circumstances, the stuff that happens can be more than and meaningfully apart from the sum of its parts. I don't intend to feed Paris, and neither do you. No one makes the decision to feed Paris. I grow some grain. You come and buy it and put it on your cart because you know someone somewhere along the way is going to buy it from you, who knows in turn that someone in Paris will buy it from them. And the whole system is far more complicated than any of us could have imagined. It's more complicated than a king could have ordered. And no king would have had any interest in ordering it anyway. That economic production could happen most effectively, and indeed most of the time did happen most effectively, when it was left to its own devices, rather than designed by someone who professes to be acting for the public good, a figure Smith distrusted explicitly, rather than being ordered by someone who thought that they could see the way to fix a whole nation's production. That's Smith's decisive contribution that generates both something like the discipline of economics as we know it and meaningfully classical liberalism as we come to understand it. There are antecedents before Smith in the classical liberal tradition, but I think until you get Smith fully identifying the way that a society can go of its own, that the orderer is substantially unnecessary and undesirable, that's when you get the social foundations for the world that Constant will describe as modern liberty a couple of generations later. It's an idea that was never universally accepted, even among people who purportedly understood it. The description of a market economy as anarchic never goes away in the mouths of the critics of the market economy from Smith's day to now. The idea that everybody out for themselves could make things happen. The idea that nobody ever makes the decision 
about what manufacturers to protect and what jobs to create and what goods to be shipped where. That that's a deep problem that necessarily results in lawlessness and failure. So I said every time there's a bad economic episode over the centuries from Smith's time until now, you hear people saying, the solution to this thing that I see that I don't like is that somebody makes the better decisions for the economy rather than letting it all happen anarchically. That goes on and on. Friedrich Hayek in the mid-20th century thinks about what it is that Ferguson and Smith saw and thinks about what it is that on his diagnosis partly shared with that of his teacher Ludwig von Mises was wrong with economic systems of socialist centralized economic planning and develops an increasingly general account of the sources of human social ordering arguing that things being the result of human action, not human design, is a very pervasive and standard fact in human social life. Provided that there are at least a little, that there's at least a little bit of a feedback mechanism, such that when I make a decision, I can get some response back from the world, nudging me in a different direction, if the decision I'm making sits badly with everyone else's needs, everyone else's decisions. With only a little bit of a feedback mechanism, it can be the case that each of us going and doing our own thing can end in the creation, not just of a mound of chaos of everyone doing their own thing, but of an order that is more complicated and more sophisticated than we could have imagined and that is greater than the sum of its parts. Now that feedback idea is important. It was there even in Smith's theory of moral sentiments. It's not that if you just let all of us run around by ourselves, we'll come up with morality. It's that when I do something wrong, I notice the look you give me. And if I judge wrongly when judging you, I notice the look that other people give me. Those moments of feedback allow for some process of evolution and development. I'm now starting to use the word evolution. That was available to Hayek in a way that it hadn't been available to Smith and Ferguson. But Hayek maintained that Darwin and the Darwinians had importantly learned from economic theory, had importantly learned from Smith and his heirs, how to think about the fact that whole organisms could develop not because God made them all at once, but through an endless series of little bit-by-bit -bit adaptations. There's a feedback mechanism. If I'm not fit, I die. But if I am fit enough, then I survive and I reproduce, and the thing that made me fit then becomes part of the ongoing reproductive genetic facts of species that gradually change over time. And Hayek explicitly uh, thought that there were commonalities between what we learn from the tradition of spontaneous order in thinking about human social organization and what the biologists had learned 100 years after Smith about how organisms survive, reproduce, and thrive. 
This, it's important to note, is not what is commonly referred to as social Darwinism. Hayek insists that the direction of learning goes the other way. It's not that the economists learned from Darwin that poor people weren't fit and needed to die, which is the stereotype that is associated with the phrase social Darwinism and that describes approximately no actually living person, no actual person's thought ever. Rather, Darwin and Darwin's associates learned from Smith and Smith's heirs. How evolution at a complicated macroscopic level could result from all these little individual bit-by-bit changes, accumulating and interacting. This becomes the idea that organizes Hayek's not only economic, but also linguistic and legal and moral thought from his middle career onward. And it's the idea that I think is the most distinctive contribution to social science of ideas that we now think of as classical liberal or libertarian ideas, not because they uniquely dictate libertarian political conclusions, but because at least having in your mind the idea that maybe orders don't have to be ordered, decisions don't have to be made all at once, plans don't have to be issued, that we could go about our lives and interact in ways that would generate effective functioning societies. Having that idea in mind allows you to see the possibility of spontaneous orders happening in society. It's the underlying libertarian moral impulse is a lens that allows one to see something that is already there. But the idea of spontaneous orders or related ideas about emergent social orders or complexity, those aren't ideas that are now only espoused by social theorists or social scientists who espouse classical liberal or libertarian normative conclusions. It's important not to run those things too closely together. The title of this talk, Libertarian Conceptions of Order, is therefore a little bit misleading, and I would want you to walk away not taking it too seriously. It's rather conceptions of order that make it at least possible to imagine libertarian social outcomes. Now, I said that after illuminating, after trying to draw attention to some of the ways in which this powerful idea of spontaneous order the emergence of orders out of lots of individual level decisions through feedback mechanisms that resulted in something that was greater than some of its parts. After drawing attention to how important it has been in the development of liberalism and how powerful an idea it is, that I was going to express some worries as well. Within the idea of spontaneous order, it can be very difficult to get access to the idea of judging the outcome. Somebody, I think it was Tom, yesterday put up a quote from James Buchanan that said, it's fundamental to the idea of market ordering that there's no judgment of the ordering except what actually results from the market process. Buchanan, drawing on the spontaneous order tradition, is worried by the tendency of economists to say, that the invisible hand gets us what the ideal economic planner would have generated. Buchanan thinks that image, that matching up of the spontaneous order to our imagined utopian planner and decision maker, 
is already reflecting a failure of imagination and is already deeply compromising what it is that we're supposed to learn from the traditional spontaneous order. Well, but sometimes we want the ability to think about what it is that's happened. How is it that we know that what we're seeing is a spontaneous order and not just a whole lot of things running into each other and happening? Because no matter what, if you let us loose, obviously something's going to happen. And we find it unsatisfying to say, well, once we've run into each other and stuff has happened, there can be no possibility of standing outside of it and judging it. And Smith was deeply concerned about this for the spontaneous order of morality. How is it that we can think our way out of the conventionalist, the local distortions that arise when our morality seems to emerge spontaneously out of our ongoing interactions? And Smith thought there were available solutions, uh, but he was concerned about them, and he didn't think that they necessarily operated automatically. Now, sometimes people will say, well, you can tell it because you can assess something about the level of organization, that the whole thing looks so much more complicated and sophisticated than any person would have planned. Well, that tells you that you're at the level of emergent orders. But what makes it an order? When we say that, part of what we mean is there's something satisfactorily functional going on. Now let me offer an example that isn't original to me, um, the evolution of gender norms. In a world in which, well, most men are a little bit stronger than most women, and in a world in which, well, Many men have a willingness and a propensity to attack and assault and potentially kill women, seeking sexual satisfaction or emotional venting. Most women, most of the time, will find it reasonable to attach themselves to a male protector. The male protector, in turn, then becoming the greatest source of danger. Lots of, indeed countless, micro-level interactions. Maybe only a handful of rapes and murders to begin with. But enough to make most women most of the time feel a little bit afraid, a little bit uneasy. Leading them mostly most of the time to look for male protectors. Creating that much more demand, or that much more pressure on the part of unattached women to seek out male protectors because obviously they are left more vulnerable now that the other women around them have protectors. And then over and over again, putting some local individual man as a result of the micro decision, you protect me, to give you power over me, to create you as my new potential assaulter or murderer or rapist. The differences can be very small and the decisions can be micro scale. No one is setting out to create a world in which all women are vulnerable and most men have power over them. No one's setting out to create the world of gender. 
But the way that comparative advantage works, we know from economics, is that a little difference can be multiplied vastly through lots and lots of interactions. It starts to make sense for there to be dramatic specialization, a specialization that looks complete even when the initial difference in ability or strength or productive capacity was quite small. Part of what marks out emergent orders is that the differences that result at the end look so much bigger than the microscale facts that fed into them. Now, what results looks awfully stable. It looks fixed. It's the kind of thing that people can look at and say, God must have willed it this way, if you're still prone to thinking that big ordered facts must have been ordered by a god. And yet, and yet we want some ability to get some moral leverage, some traction to critique. It's a problem in spontaneous order thinking that it seems to yield the conclusion that Buchanan gave, that there's no such thing as, no possibility of, standing outside the order and critiquing it. A different kind of problem. Once you have a hold of the idea of spontaneous order, it's appropriate to see it everywhere. It really is everywhere. It's a great, big, powerful idea, something that can unify economic production and how Paris gets fed with the evolution of language, with the evolution of law, with even potentially the evolution of morality. That is one of the biggest ideas in human social understanding. But big ideas are worrying ideas. And there's a tendency to think that a big idea is an everything idea. Why is spontaneous order not an everything idea? Well, even in economics, there's a great deal of decision-making and planning. I want to draw attention to two ways in which just thinking of an economic system as everyone going off doing their own thing and the invisible hand guiding us can be an obstacle to understanding. One is the existence of the corporate firm. No substantial market economy since the early 19th century has been without really large-scale economic productive organization into firms that eventually became corporations. And in corporations, decisions are made all the time. 20th century economists, including Joseph Schumpeter, constantly pointed to this as a kind of puzzle or paradox. The market economy is supposed to be this unplanned order, but it's populated by all these little islands of incredibly intense planning. And at least on a first read, Hayek's key essays about information in society and the emergence of spontaneous order through the price system seem to say that well, all every businessman does is wake up in the morning and check out the prices of their inputs. And if the prices timid has gone up, they don't inquire into why or how long-term it's, they just change their production function accordingly. But that's nothing like what people do in firms. They try to anticipate the prices of their inputs. They try to make decisions about the placement of their production 
facilities, they try to organize their whole little productive island. They don't just operate via Brownian motion bouncing off prices. They think, they decide, they plan. They also disagree. The market system, the world of buying and selling, is one way of reconciling the fact that our pluralism generates disagreements. You and I disagree about the best use of that forest. I think it would make very fine lumber. You think it would make a very fine park. Well, in a world of well-defined property rights and auction markets and all the rest, how do we resolve that disagreement? Well, I buy it from you, or you buy it from me, or we bid against each other in buying it from the third party. We never have to reach, indeed we don't have any access to, the truth of the matter. But markets and bidding and prices aren't the only mechanisms for resolving disagreements. Many disagreements are resolved through association and disassociation. I disagree with you about the right way to worship God. I'm not going to bid against you. I'm going to schism, ultimately. I'm going to create a new church of my own where we can worship God in the right way, unlike what you barbaric heretics are still doing over there. Under a system of liberal freedom of association, part of what we now think of as civil society, that's a way of reconciling disagreement. Everybody go to their own corners. But there are also ways of reconciling disagreement that are absolutely fundamental to ongoing pluralistic social human interaction that are argue it out. And if we can't reach solution through argument, what do we do? We vote. The corporation doesn't only reconcile disagreements about what to do with resources by bidding. And normally within a corporation, if you and I disagree about the right way for our firm to proceed, we don't solve it by bidding against each other within the corporation for the right answer. If I think that you're leading the corporation the wrong way and I'm really convinced that I know better about what the right prices and resources and production capacities will be, I'll split. I will leave the firm. I'll take as many of the productive workers with me as I can. I might seek to have you buy me out so that I'm not leaving empty-handed, but I will go set up a rival firm with my better ideas. Short of that, what do we do? Well, we have decision-making procedures up to and including at the level of the board we vote. Voting and disassociating are pervasive ongoing facts as well as bidding. And they require more deliberate decision, more intention and attention than the vision of spontaneous order seems to suggest once people get a hold of it. And the final instance of how all of this works to create some potential gaps and space in the idea of spontaneous order, I want to uh, <coughs> describe with reference the work of the Nobel Prize winning political scientist Eleanor Ostrom. Eleanor Ostrom is an important figure in the spontaneous order tradition. She shows very powerfully over her life's work that even the kinds of resources that lots of traditional economists said could never be handled through the market because we share access to them, because they have features of being 
held in common. That even common pool resources can be, and indeed routinely are, successfully managed and ordered, not through state law, but rather through the interaction of the body of persons who share them. Not spontaneously and anarchically, however. Ostrom offers a set of principles for what she found when she looked around the world in her decades of study about what allows people to manage common pool resources effectively. One of them is associational, the very first. The group that has access to the common pool resource has to have well-defined boundaries. We have to know who the participants are. And then several of the others are democratic. We have to have mechanisms for giving feedback about the norms that we use to manage the shared water resource or the shared land resource and so on. There's decision mixed in. What we see is spontaneous order relative to the Hobbesian imagination that says, if the state doesn't do it, it can't possibly get done. In fact, the people on the ground, the people who are affected, have a great deal of ability to generate sophisticated solutions. But they don't do so utterly spontaneously. They do so spontaneously with respect to the rest of the world, but in a planned, careful, deliberate, and often democratic way with respect to their fellows. They have to be able to manage disagreement. They can't split any further because we can't carve the lake up. They need to continue to live with each other and manage their disagreements. That means that there are moments of planning, of decision, mixed into this world that isn't in an overall way shaped by deliberate order, by deliberate design. But there's a great deal of intentionality and planning and design that goes into it. We don't just bump into prices and go off on our way. With that in mind, remember what I said about legal codification going all the way back to Rome. It was always the case the codifiers understood themselves to be reporting what had happened. But you only ever take some of what has happened. Because everything that's happened, well, that's reading the whole library. And the point of codification is to simplify. And so the codifier is always making decisions. Which are the cases that really seem like they express the best rule? Which are the cases that seem most representative? Which are the legal paths that were dead ends that we should disregard? And which were the legal paths that have proven to be effective? There's an ongoing back and forth over the millennium of Roman law, and in a different way over the now, near, uh, now seven or eight centuries of the development of English common law, between all the stuff that happens case by case and the moments of sitting down and thinking it out. Sitting down and thinking it out isn't deciding it and ordering it. The codifier isn't Hobbes's sovereign. But neither is the codifier a passive recipient. And thinking about how it is we interact between the spontaneously ordered world of complexity that's too much for any of us to think about and our need to sometimes think about it nonetheless. That's one of the great, I think, ongoing problems 
in the tradition of social thought and social theory generated by Ferguson and Smith and Hayek. Thank you. Could you comment and perhaps point to other academic commentary on the apparent tendency of spontaneously generated entities to grow because they become more efficient um, and grow again because they become more efficient, but eventually grow to become inefficient, and destructive in some cases, in many cases. For example, as we all know, government all around us, Rome as a, as a particular example, but also in the economic world where uh, entrepreneurially initiated companies become bigger and bigger, more inefficient, and eventually, uh, in, in many cases, dissolve or, or go out of business, but in some cases don't. And in particular, in the case of government, where the only solution ultimately becomes some sort of revolution. Could, could you comment on that tendency? Uh, there's a lot in there. Um, Biologists are at pains to deny that a phrase like survival of the fittest connotes some ongoing tendency to move toward some externally defined standard. Evolution doesn't mean that over time all species t tend to become top of the food chain alpha predators. What it means is there's lots of adaptations to lots of niches. Um, there's not a unidirectional tendency that they get bigger or they get fiercer. It's not a unidirectional tendency toward them overpopulating and devouring their food stuff and so on. There's constant adaptation. And all fitness means is that the adaptation has been effective for that time and place. I don't think that there's a generalized tendency in spontaneous orders for that kind of hypertrophy. There's also not utopia and perfection. Stuff goes wrong. But in a spontaneous order in which there are feedback mechanisms to push back against order, or push back against error, things go wrong and pendulums swing and errors get pushed back against. Uh, there hasn't been any universal tendency for corporations to get ever larger as shares of their national economy. Corporations rise and fall. Particular corporations as well as whole industrial sectors rise and fall. There has not been a secular tendency in um, democratic governments that have feedback mechanisms for government to grow as a share of the total social and economic space. Governments do do more stuff, but there's also vastly more stuff, vastly more stuff in the world. Uh, Hayek would have been deeply resistant to any conclusion, to any argument that led to the conclusion there's no solution but revolution. Um, this, by the way, was a source of, I think, disagreement between Hayek and Buchanan. Buchanan was ultimately deeply in the grip of the imagination of the American Revolution. And toward the end of their life, the, toward the end of Hayek's life, Buchanan wrote a review of Hayek's fatal conceit in which he said, some of us had admired Hayek all along, but we've been worried about this tendency that's now very clear in the fatal conceit, it seems to be a conclusion that says that John Locke was wrong, and surely we can't accept that. 
Hayek accepted it fully. Um, a revolutionary moment is a moment to try to decide everything all at once. That's what Burke thought was so dangerous about it. That's why Burke said the English revolutionaries of 1688 were so smart to pretend they weren't revolutionaries at all because it tied their own hands. Even though, in fact, they had overthrown a king, they insisted that what they had done was merely to restore traditional old legal order because if they hadn't done that, they would have imagined that they were in a position to exercise the power to recreate English legal and political society all at once, which was the error of the French National Assembly. The revolutionary moment is a moment for catastrophic error because you think that you can control very much more than you actually can. 